Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 25. The issue, Trump sets out to steal the election. Stay tuned. If there is anything else that cuts to the core of what a republic is, it's the right for every person to vote. We fought against taxation without representation. That's how we founded this nation. But no democratic nation can exist without representation. When Jefferson wrote, we were all equal, we weren't. Women couldn't vote. Slaves couldn't vote, indentured servants couldn't vote, and if you weren't property, you couldn't vote. If America had an original sin, it was that we failed the promise of our Declaration of Independence. But we passed a constitution soon afterwards that contemplated perfecting that union. And oh, so slowly have we been working on that perfection. It took a civil war to get blacks the right to vote. And years more before they got to actually exercise that right. And Jim Crow laws did what they could as part of the South's resistance to that right to vote to stall it and compromise it in any way possible even longer. Women didn't get to vote until 1920. And some women were literally tortured for their belief that they should have that right. And women struggle to this day to break through that ceiling said to be glass appearing more like concrete, holding them back from all that they can be. Persons of color are having a similar and different kind of struggle. Of course, in recent days, former Vice President Joe Biden has shown that he wants to move the nation forward in this respect, make it more perfect, choosing a woman and a woman of color to be his vice presidential candidate. That is Senator Kamala Harris. Let's go back. In 2016, we had Russians interfere in the election on behalf of Donald Trump. Intelligence tells us they're back again. But publicly, we've endorsed no policy in the Senate where Moscow Mitch reigns to correct against this intrusion again in our election. Some strongly suspect that in 2016, there were some 78,000 votes or so that made the difference in the Electoral College. That number is just about right. But the wondering is if any of the machines were compromised or what other electoral pirouette did we miss that may have corrupted that vote. This year, the coronavirus has prompted every state to consider mail-in ballots because voters shouldn't have to risk contracting this deadly virus in order to exercise their constitutional right to vote. Trump has been dropping like a stone in the polls in recent days and losing ground in these still early polls in the battleground states that elevated him earlier to his accidency. Of course, we can't overlook the fact that he came in three million votes short in the popular vote behind former Secretary of State, former Senator, and former First Lady Hillary Clinton. Those who want a fast and easy way to keep up with the stats on this election may get some good results at 538.com. Spell out the words. Right now, Biden is ahead, according to the polls, but it's a long way in electoral days from now to November the 3rd, and it's not helped by the tricks and corruption of the man in the West Wing. It's been a Republican tactic for a long time before this election and before 2016 to win where Republicans shouldn't, by suppressing the vote in various ways. We may not know exactly what surprises the Russians have in store for us this presidential election that might do that. But this time, there are some things that are right out in the open that can't be missed, and it's what Trump is doing to flatten the vote, to suppress the vote. Trump has been resting his heavy hand against the scales that tilt the election to being full and fair, favoring a fix by suppressing the mail-in ballots that the public is expected to use, needs to use in many cases, to vote in this pandemic year. Trump is opposed to funding the post office with an additional $25 billion to handle the high volumes of mail-in ballots that are expected. Trump said it straight out 
Oh, the Democrats want that money. He knows there's going to be millions and millions of ballots. He can't figure out how to handle it himself. So he also opposes another $3 billion for the states themselves to process the ballots. Don't take my word for it. Listen to him. They can be forged. They can be captured. They can be taken. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. If we don't make a deal, that means they don't get the money. Trump said the ballots could be forged. Of course, he has no proof from past experience or any anecdotes that he can give now that anything of the sort is true. Utah Senator Romney said, quote, I don't know of any evidence that voting by mail would increase fraud. It is ironic that Trump's failure to manage the pandemic has increased the demand to be safe when voting by mail-in ballots instead of in-person voting, which probably would be preferred. In other words, perhaps if he handled the pandemic better, he wouldn't have to torture what's going on with mail-in ballots. But does that mean he had something planned for the machines that he thinks he can control? I don't have any evidence of it, but it's a question more people should be asking. Did Trump have an angle on the machines in key precincts and battleground states? That's the question. Okay, so Trump is okay with mail-in ballots in Florida. So why the difference? Does he know something that we don't know? That's how he voted. He voted by mail-in ballot, or will. What do you think he knows about Florida's voting? Now, Trump, while he approves of Florida's mail-in ballots, he opposes the no-excuse mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state where Governor Tom Wolf approved a bill permitting such ballots. And the Republicans then filed a court attack against 67 county election boards on the integrity of the mail-in ballots. And they sued the state secretary of state as well. In response, I think they may have been surprised because the federal judge in Pennsylvania, J. Nicholas Rangin, who was appointed to the bench by Trump, demanded that the Republicans, who were challenging the mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, come in with any proof of fraud. Because he found that instances of fraud are relevant to the claims and defenses in this case, but if there is no fraud, <laughs> there is no case. I don't believe they filed any instances on Friday, this past Friday, I'm talking to you on Sunday, when it was required, but I'm watching that case to see what the court does there, and I'd be very surprised if they filed anything. The cover story from the post office is that they are just streamlining for efficiency. Well, you got to wonder what kind of efficiency they're defining. If efficiency means slower, is that efficient or is that slower? The cover story that they have is gossamer thin. Shouldn't a con be non-obvious? But, you know, not when you're a dictator and when the law doesn't matter. The streamlining consists of taking out of service large volume mail sorting machines, removing mailboxes from the streets, cutting back on the time the carriers may work. And they chose an election year to do this streamlining. Aaron Gordon at Vice filed a story this past Friday citing internal Postal Service documents that said the Postal Service was reducing equipment, and that included the removal of 20% of the letter sorting machines, meaning they take, in the end, they take out 502 machines out of service. These machines, the vast majority of them, are the type that sort letters, postcards, ballots, marketing mail, and similar sized pieces. Sources say it's been rare that the post office decommissions these very expensive machines. Aaron said these machines cost millions of dollars and had been observed being destroyed, even thrown in the dumpster. Aaron also reported that there are detailed plans to reroute mail to sorting facilities further away in order to centralize mail processing even if it moves the mail across further distances. Well, that's some kind of streamlining, isn't it? That's some kind of efficiency. Making the distance longer for the letter to receive at a collective area where it is then processed. Union officials told Aaron the result of these plans were clear. This will slow mail processing. So I guess efficiency is in the eye of the beholder, and in this case it's in the eye of Trump and his appointee at the head as the postmaster general of the Postal Service. Forty-six states have been told to expect voting delays by mail and ballot. Now, is that efficient? 
No, I don't think so. Trump chose a deep pocket contributor, as I mentioned, to his last presidential campaign with ethical conflicts, namely Louis DeJoy, no joy to anyone, and Louis is entangled with contractors to the Postal Service and apparently quite beholden and loyal to Trump's presidential campaign. Somebody should warn him what Trump does to those who are loyal to him when they expect loyalty from Trump. Last uh, Wednesday, 47 senators wrote to Joy demanding that he not take any action that makes it harder and more expensive for Americans to vote. Crocodile tears from uh, DeJoy, no doubt. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin said, the Trump administration is launching an all-out war on the U.S. Postal Service. Somebody should really care that what they're doing here is a crime, if the certain elements are as they appear to be. Let's start with the fact that it's a crime. Whoever, quote, knowingly and willfully obstructs or retards the passage of the mail or any carrier or conveyance carrying the mail. And, you know, one can be in prison uh, for not more than six months or pay a fine as well. That's Title 18, Section 1701. But there's another crime, and it's a felony. Whoever takes any letter, postal card, or package out of any post office or any authorized depository for mail matter or from any letter or mail carrier, or which has been in any post office or authorized depository, or in the custody of any letter or mail carrier, before it has been delivered to the person to whom it was directed, with design to obstruct the correspondence, or to pry into the business or secrets of another, or opens, secretes, embezzles, or destroys the same. That's a five-year felony, and that's Section 1702 of Title 18. There's also one that applies to uh, who these people are, federal employees. It's a crime for a federal employee, quote, to use his official authority for the purpose of interfering with or affecting the nomination or the election of any candidate for the office of president, vice president, presidential elector, member of the Senate, member of the House of Representatives, close quote, and all those offices are up this year. The penalty is one year or more. That's Section 595 of Title 18. There's also the question that should matter to some of us, maybe not to Barr and not to anybody in this cabinet, the question of constitutionality. The Constitution provides in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 7, that Congress has the power, quote, to establish post offices and post roads. There's no power to disestablish the post office. It is a constitutional power of the Congress president can't disestablish it, but that's what Trump has been setting out to do, at least this presidential election cycle. Dare I say before uh, a too comfortable Congress that this is impeachable. This is absolutely impeachable. It's impeachable as to DeJoy. It's impeachable as to the president. And are we doing anything about it? Nah. It's also subject to prosecution. But are we doing anything about that? No. But where is there a law that we can use against these criminals, this crime conspiracy? A New Jersey representative has asked his state AG to investigate the states. They are not beyond the law. They are the law. Other states are following suit. They're looking at what opportunities they have to have state actions for this misconduct. The Postal Service IG is looking at it, but... These guys who are gals who are thought of as junkyard dogs are prone to getting fired as soon as they find anything, as soon as they get close to the bone and sink their teeth into it. Representative Jerry Connolly is involved with oversight on his sub subcommittee of the Postal Service, and he wants to join before his committee to testify. I do get anxious given the Congress's past history of what it'll be like to get anybody up there. And why wouldn't they use their inherent power to really put some meat into this thing, to really make it happen? Citizens protested right outside uh, DeJoy's house in the last couple of days. But, you know, Trump the next day, he stood by his man. Listen. Yeah, he's a fantastic man. He wants to, he wants to make the post office great again. You ever hear the expression? He wants to make the post office great again. The post office is a catastrophe. In recent days, Trump has been really transfixed on Carolyn Maloney's recent election, and it's probably because she shares Connolly's view about the Postal Service's failure to serve. 
And so that's why he strikes out at her. I haven't heard him strike out at Jerry Connolly, who's a friend and a, a represent, our representative in Northern Virginia. I'm not in his district. I'm luckily in another Democrat's district. You know, we could talk about the history. Everybody knows how the legendary Benjamin Franklin was our first postmaster general. DeJoy, you are no Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Franklin had been postmaster during the American Revolution. The Constitution granted the federal government the power to establish post roads, as I said, and by 1823 there were more than 80,000 miles. In the 1830s, French aristocrat, historian, and diplomat Alexis de Tocqueville, he wrote, from time to time, in his travels, we came to a hut in the midst of the forest. This was a post office. <laughs> Sacre bleu. In 1851, Congress set aside an appropriation to support what it knew would be an operation in the red. That is, they were supporting it in the red. Keep that in mind. By 1860, there were 28,000 post offices. In 1863, there was home delivery, and that was the difference. And then farmers, they wanted home delivery, and so they later insisted they get services on the country roads. This prompted a deficit, of course, but it was funded because the model had long been, as to the Postal Service, that this was a universal service obligation, meaning, quote, the idea that there are certain services that every American deserves to receive at a low price. A service. Imagine that. Trump can't. None of this is the focus of Trump. He's focused on, like a laser on how he can be re-elected, not what's best for the nation, not what the Constitution says, not what the criminal code says, whatever he can get away with to steal this election like he stole the one in 16. On Friday, I spent some time with a, a panel at MSNBC on this issue, and I made the remark uh, at one point uh, on the panel with Ari Milber, I asked if we had examined the stats on where the machines existed and were removed to see if the political leaning of the persons in a zip code made a difference to the post office's efforts at streamlining. Now, we couldn't get into it, and we couldn't have resolved it with the guests who were on the panel, but not what I raised on the show, certainly. But I received an email Friday evening after the show from Peter Lance, an award-winning journalist and author, an investigative reporter who has a... Oh, a host of uh, successful investigations. And he said he knew a researcher who had examined that connection, not the specific one I mentioned about the machines. Uh, and she did so by researching open source media links and databases in regard to a program that the Postal Service claimed was to improve, get this, delivery efficiency. And this researcher wondered if the study might instead be calculated to gauge the strength of Trump's Democratic opposition in certain zip codes. So it's, it sounds like the thought I had, but it was precisely uh, set to data that was publicly available. The underlying program had, those, had the initials ESAS, standing for Expedited Two-Street Afternoon Sortation. You know, it's very interesting, expedited, when in fact... They're delaying. It's peculiar about the language, the misleading language. It's kind of hard to understand how this could be more efficient when the mails are already being delayed. So I had a conversation with Peter to see what he thought it all meant. I'm glad to say that we're with Peter Lance today, uh, a quite an award-winning journalist who is an investigative reporter. And I thought we'd visit with him, uh, not just because he and I both went to Fordham and Columbia at different times, <laughs> but because this is a man who can dig down and tell us what really happened, when it happened, how it happened. And today I'm talking to him about the Postal Service a little bit. Peter, glad you could join us. I'm thrilled, John. I, I'm a big fan of you. Whenever you're on with Ari Melber, I'm just I'm riveted. So, uh, and the Postal Service crisis is the constitutional crisis that we've all been fearing, right? I think you'd agree. I right? would agree, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think it was, uh, one of the things that brought us together is that uh, I made a remark during the interview about uh, somebody really should look at whether or not certain precincts or counties in the state uh -huh. have been targeted in connection with the so-called reforms of the Postal Service. And I think that you had some anxiety about that as well. Yes, in fact, um, for years I've worked with an amazing woman named Claire McKean who lives in eastern Oregon. 
She's a postal worker. She's a mail carrier. She has two roots up there and just salt of the earth woman and a natural born investigator. I mean, she, uh, I did a lot of work on the Russian connections to Donald Trump early in his administration. I was going to write a book at the time and uh, she just said, started, I started communicating with her and she did a lot of research on the 78,000 votes or so that Trump captured the Electoral College on in those battleground states in the Midwest coming up with really probative evidence that uh, Russian interference could have been responsible. I mean, you know how everybody in the media said, oh, there's no real proof that the Russians actually hacked anything. That was the mantra for years, and still is in the mainstream media. She provided me with probative evidence. And so anyway, when this thing began to break recently, uh, she and I talked at least once a week, and she sent me this incredible research uh, and I forwarded it to you like this Friday night, and you kindly responded. Uh, and she is, you know, makes an incredible case where she overlaps. She looks at, they're doing these tests uh, for a certain, uh, uh, supposedly a program that's going to improve the efficiency of the post office, but it's a classic data mining operation allowing Louis DeJoy and the Trumpies to basically have incredible information on counties that are likely to vote Democratic so that they could literally uh, target, slow down the mail in those particular zip code zones. Imagine that. I mean, with surgical precision, they could let the mail go in the, in the mail-in vote to Republican red zip code zones so they can vote, but they could slow down the mail in these Democratic areas, which are all, all huge urban centers. Yes, and, and that's like another layer, along with the removal of the sorting machines, the removal of the mailboxes, and the you know cutting of overtime, that's another way to just strangle or kneecap, as President Obama said, the Postal Service. Yes, it's a, it's a crime in the making. I mean, there are federal crimes <clears throat> against interfering with the Postal Service and, and uh, encumbering individual mail. And also, even for uh, public officials, interfering on behalf of a candidate in an election from the president down to dog catcher. So it, it's quite a, quite a remarkable... Uh, and transparent uh, crime and unconstitutional act by the president in conjunction with his cronies in the cabinet. And you know, John, I was waiting, uh, you know, I, I can't expect all things from you and Harry Melbourne to esteem members of the bar, <laughs> but I, I've been waiting, I've been frustrated that someone uh, on the order of Lawrence Tribe hasn't come up with some kind of a legal theory to get injunctive relief since irreparable damage is being done. So. On Friday night, I'm mentioning this to you for the first time, I wrote a kind of a fan letter to Lawrence Tribe at Harvard, and I copied his assistant, and I'll forward you that. Okay. And I'm hoping he responds. Now, he may already be, have something in the works, but it seems to me, why can't they go into the appropriate federal uh, you know, uh, district court, ultimately it'll go to a circuit court, and try to get injunctive relief? Because like, if they're destroying these voting machines, as Rachel Maddow suggested, Friday night. I mean, that's irreparable damage. Yes, it is. And uh, there have been announcements in the last, I don't know, 24, 48 hours of a congressman in New Jersey asking the attorney general on the state level to look into what's going. And several other states have expressed interest and concern about this on the civil right. and perhaps criminal side. And I, right. I think we'll see more of that. And Jerry Connolly, who has oversight for the post office, is uh, invited, when we've seen how this has happened in the past, has invited yeah. DeJoy to come to the Congress to testify and explain himself. And then there was a protest outside DeJoy's house. It, it's right. a good example of how we the people has become more relevant than our elected officials. The, the sunshine yeah. is the only thing that seems to work. And it has prompted lawsuits and actions reluctantly. And that's been the, the history of my life as I've observed it, that at every crisis in America, it's finally we the people that push it to the forefront. Like, you know, you writing something and Claire having done this uh, legwork to figure this out. And it's been out there in plain view. Well, you know, the, I did write a kind of a, a snide uh, <laughs> tweet the other, yesterday about uh, Carolyn Maloney, who won by a hair's whisker, you know, in her, her district uh, over this challenge from uh, Serge Patel, you know, in New York. Uh, former Obama aide, you know, I, I she just was going on with uh, Reverend Al yesterday on MSNBC, which is my go-to uh, network, 
talking about, wow, well, we've invited, again, it's like Jerry Conway, we're inviting him. Why not subpoena him, and why not have the hearing forthwith on Friday after the Democratic Convention? What are people waiting for? I mean, every day that goes by toward the election, they're getting deeper and deeper, more entrenched. And if the mail can't, they've only announced it's what, 46 states? That they don't know that they can deliver the mail on exactly. time. In order to, exactly. Right? And so the so real. John, do what you can, man. Pick up the cudgel, use your bully pulpit, and just do whatever you can. I'm going to forward you my letter to, to uh, you know, Professor Tribe, and maybe, you know, the lawyers can finally do something great. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be nice? Yes. What happened? Yeah. What What happened to the? You know, the, I'm a member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and we call ourselves Liberty's Last Champions in accepting criminal defense cases. Where are the real lawyers? Where are the warriors? And you know, it's often the Google groups that are getting the information that the Hill asks right. for that they can't get themselves. You know, and as for the right. conventions, since they're con virtual conventions, why not hold the hearings and and make it a right. part of the presentation at the convention. I mean, let the world exactly. see this stuff. They, they, they're, right. they're in these stovepipes and they don't do the things that are necessary. I know this was yeah, an interview I was doing with you, right? Yeah, wow. So. From your lips to God's ears, John. Well, uh, I look forward to... Uh, you have a lead piece, don't you, in the July-August issue of Vanity Fair? Yeah, I went back and I looked at it. It's called Homicide at Rough Point. And Rough Point's the estate of Doris Duke in Newport, Rhode Island, my hometown. And she was the richest woman in America in 1966. And she killed her longtime companion, an amazing man, a war hero and Renaissance man named Eduardo Torella, crushed him to death under the wheels of a two-ton station wagon on October 7, 1966. The town wow. always believed she got away with murder. She bought off the town. Those are the rumors. And I had wanted to do this story my entire professional life. And I finally, after Trump made the comment about shooting somebody on Fifth Avenue and getting away with it, I went, bing, a light bulb went off above my head, <laughs> and I said, I'm going to do this. I put one foot in front of the other. Classic shoe-leather journalism. had no real leads, but I, the people in Newport, to, to, to go back to what you were just saying, who really knew a little fragment of the, the truth here and another cop wanted to tell the truth there, the surviving cops, you know, I put it together. It's in it's the lead piece in the beautiful... Uh, um, you know, uh, issue uh, Viola Davis issue of Vanity Fair that's on the newsstands now, combined July August issue called Homicide at Rough Point. And one last little plug, if you don't mind, I have a book I'm writing of the same title, and there's a pre order page on Amazon. The, the hardcover is going to come out on January 12th, and I'm, I'm working day and night on the book, uh, which could, I hope, emulate some of the success of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So, We'll see what happens. Always glad to be with a great writer. So much fun to be with you, Peter. Thanks for joining us. You too, John. Now, Peter and I discussed the role of Claire McKean, who, who had done the research and was a contractor for the Postal Service in eastern Oregon. And uh, what, what started it, I think, is she came across an article in the Postal Times, a trade magazine, and it described the ESAS program that I earlier mentioned. She compared the voting histories of populations in these ESAS zip code zones with the voting histories in the counties. In effect, uh, this information she thought, the thing you had to look at was, could this information be used to show that delivery was slow in key Democratic populations? So I, I spoke to Claire as well, and this is our conversation. We have with us today uh, Claire McKean. The other day on MSNBC, we were talking about whether or not precincts might have been targeted by the maladministration of the Postal Service. And as a result of that, Claire got in touch with us by means of a uh, famous correspondent, Peter Lance, and uh, said she'd been studying the matter and having been a postal contractor and having looked at the statistics, she thought she saw certain patterns. Claire, I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. Now, Claire, uh, let's start at the beginning. How, how first do you collect information that might suggest any patterns at all in, in the way the new uh, Postmaster General, DeJoy, is doing his job or having his staff do their jobs? Well, there was a trade magazine uh, called Postal Times, and uh, I happened to come across an article in Postal Times, and it was discussing the uh, new program that was going to be un unveiled, the ESAS, or um, Expedited to Street 
uh, afternoon sortation program, and that it was supposed to begin on July 25th, and it was supposed to run for 30 to 60 days, and then they would reevaluate it at the end of that 30 to 60 day period. And it came with a list of test sites that, that the programs were supposed to be targeted to. And on that list was every zip code of every post office that was going to be uh, part of that program. And so I started looking at the, um, the comparison between the areas that were listed on the list and started thinking, I wonder how these people vote. I wonder if they vote more heavily Democratic or more heavily Republican. So I went through the uh, zip codes, zip code by zip code, and I gleaned the uh, population of each one of the zip codes. And then I researched the voting habits of the counties that those zip codes were in. And I found out how they voted. And um, it, the outcome was pretty startling. Now, as I understand it, you looked at the top 10 Democratic districts in the testing program, is that correct? Yes, I did, among other things. And uh, those were largely urban and racially diverse, is that a fair summary of your findings? Yep, and, I would say so. And, and do you have any idea about how many people we're talking about in those Democratic districts? With the uh, top 10 uh, targeted areas, the uh, population of those 10 areas combined was 5,536,586. Combined population of all of the sites that vote Democratic, of all of them, was 17 million. I see. It was 17 million for the, uh, for the, entire, uh, for the entire site. That's that one area that voted, the areas that vote Democratic. And, and how does that compare to the GOP districts? Well, the GOP district was like 1,620,716. Okay, so there's a big difference. Big difference. And, and the difference also comes in the geographic breakdown of, of these areas that are targeted. The top 10 are Los Angeles, Chicago, Las Vegas, Milwaukee, Detroit, you know, uh, whereas the top 10 of the Republican side is uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, um, Jacksonville, Florida, Pasco, Washington, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> the top population area that was targeted in the top 10 of the list, that, the, the top 10 on the list that I have is Springfield, Missouri, and that population is only 244,000. 653. So, you know, whereas the top, the top, the first one in on the Democrat side is Los Angeles, California at 1,338,061. So that tells you the, the disparity, you know, between the populations that are being targeted, the top populations that are being targeted. Now, some of the sites are in what we uh, have recognized so far as battleground sites. So in Florida, do we have any of these sites there that might be affected? We do. Uh, Miami-Dade County. Uh, Miami-Dade is affected. Uh, um, and that's mostly a Democratic area. And then uh, uh, Jacksonville and St. Petersburg are affected uh, on the Republican side, but once again, the population disparity is is pretty big. So, in the St. Petersburg area, is only 195,000, whereas the and the population in Jacksonville is even less at 149,000, whereas the population of that's affected by the Miami uh, area is quite a bit higher, and I'm the population affected in the... The, uh, the memo I have from you 
says the total population of the test site zip codes that vote Democratic was 17,368,620. Is that right? Correct. And the same information for test site counties that voted Republican was less than half that number at 8,056,265. Correct. So this would allow, uh, if one were inclined to do so, this would allow one to target uh, the efficiency or inefficiency of the Postal Service to Democratic or Republican locations. Is that fair to say? Yes. Now, you have uh, some experience yourself as a contractor with the Postal Service, is that right? Correct. And that's where you get the expertise to be able to analyze the policies that you're commenting on, is that right? Yep. Now, um, these choices that they're making, taking out machines that are for sorting, taking boxes off the street, uh, streamlining, as they call it, but reducing the hours people can work, uh, are you in a position to say that is a policy that favors the incumbent, Mr. Trump, in this election? I would assume that it would, based on the fact that that the areas where they're the areas where they're targeting removing these uh, sorting machines and mailboxes are areas that are on the list that I have here that are heavily Democratic areas. They're they're going into say Queens and removing the mailboxes there, and I'm getting I'm seeing reports that the mail in Queens is slowed down ex exceptionally. Um, I'm seeing. You know, I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm watching all over the country to see what parts of this list are popping up as distress areas where mailboxes and uh, sorting machines are being taken away. And one of, one of the areas that I found interesting was Portland, where they're taking out the sorting machines and the mailboxes, and Eugene, which is where they're taking out mailboxes and sorting machines. And, you know, I'm... It just seems to me that if you target those areas where people vote heavily Democratic, yeah. the chaos and confusion and slowdown is going to cause those areas to have ballots that don't make it to the post office. I've been a contractor for probably 15 years, and I have only seen one sorting machine taking out of a tiny little post office that really didn't need it anymore. That's it. I've never seen a campaign as heavy as this where they're taking everything out and not reassigning it to other places, but just taking them completely out of commission. Now, at one point there was a report that they were moving these machines, and then there was another report that at least has been represented as more accurate to say they're just taking them out of commission. But you haven't seen any publications that suggest they're moving them, say, from a Democratic area to a Republican area, or... Uh, not, no, I have not. Okay. I have not seen anything to that effect. And the publication that you're looking at that uh, gives you this source information is which one? The uh, list of test sites was in the Postal Times. So it's publicly available? It is publicly available, and so, is this, so are the statistics that I used in order to do the comparisons with. It's all publicly available. And where the statistics come from? One is from a, pes, a test, uh, I mean, a, a website called uh, Best Places, and it does a real estate comparison of areas that a person might be thinking of moving into. And uh, it gives you the complete breakdown of the politics of that area, how that town voted, how that county voted, how that state voted in the last five elections. And then it compares them to say whether they are heavily Democratic, heavily Republican, leaning Democratic, leaning Republican, and it gives you the demographics of how they vote. It was pretty, it was pretty intense. I, I thought it was a really good one. And then the uh, other site that I used to get the population of the zip codes is the actual U.S. Postal Service zip code demographics, and that's a, a, another uh, site that you just click onto, and it tells you what the what the what that what that uh, population of that exact zip code is. So th this is information then that's in plain view. 
plain view. Anybody can go get it. <laughs> well, that that's comforting. Um, uh, so it's been out there, and nobody's paying attention to it. But they wouldn't be targeting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't be targeting it otherwise. Somebody's got that information somewhere. Right. They're definitely using it to their advantage. Well, I'm glad that you spent the energy doing this. Now, you've spent some time doing investigative work in connection with other matters. Is that right? Yeah, I have. So this is, uh, you took this on as a person who knows something about the Postal Service and started following this information and you detected these trends, is that right? Correct. And now you've made them available to us. Correct. Well, I want to thank you. I think this has been a tre tremendous help and I hope other people will uh, study this information and see as a policy matter what's going on at the post office, which does not look very good right now. I certainly hope so. <laughs> Capitol Hill and the states should drill down on exactly what the Postal Service is doing and failing to do, and there is no time to waste. I can't believe there's a vacation on the Hill while we have these issues, not just the Postal one, but we have the pandemic. We have kids going back to school. Since the conventions are going on, I don't know why there's any delay that we couldn't be doing more things than just the convention. In fact, why not even show this at the convention? So let's talk for a minute about how each day is spent without action is a day closer to the election. That's how Trump wants it. Even if he ultimately has to forward some of the funds, every delay means it's harder to implement the changes that are necessary to have voting work. So for each of us, we got to vote by October the 3rd. We can't fool around with it. Give them plenty of time, even with their delays, for the mail-in ballots to get where they're supposed to go. Now, let's also talk for a moment about how Trump is putting our children at risk. Stay tuned. Trump would lull American parents and their children to a place of danger for the children and for those who would come in contact with these possible super spreaders if they contract the virus, if they're asymptomatic. And we're talking about parents who may have uh, be more vulnerable and grandparents and neighbors and all manner of people, including even the bus driver and the teachers, I suppose. Listen. I'm talking about from getting very sick. If you look at children, I mean, they're able to throw it off very easily. And it's an amazing thing because some flus, they don't. They get very sick and they have problems with flus and they have problems with other things. But for whatever reason, the China virus, children handle it very well. And uh, they, may, they may get it. It, they get it, and it, it doesn't have much of an impact on them. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers of, of in terms of mortality, fatality, the numbers for children under a certain age, meaning young, their immune systems are very, very strong. They're very powerful, and they, they seem to be able to handle it very well, and that's according to every statistic. But our old standby to get at the truth is Dr. Fauci who warns of the danger to children. And as much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying there's not going to be a surge and that we can safely open the economy. And the facts will t bear this out. But if we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged kids who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And I think we ought to look at the Swedish model and we ought to look at letting our kids get back to school. I think it's a huge mistake if we don't open the schools in the fall. I have never made myself out to be the end-all and only voice in this. I'm a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. I give advice according to the best scientific evidence. There are a number of other people who come into that and give advice that are more related to the things that you spoke about, about the need to get the country back open again and economically. I don't give advice about economic things. I don't give advice about anything other than public health. So I wanted to respond to that. The second thing is that you use the word we should be humble about what we don't know. And I think that falls under the fact that we don't know everything about this virus. And we really better be very careful, particularly when it comes to children. Because the more and more we learn, we're seeing things about what this virus can do that we didn't see from the studies in China or in Europe. For example, right now, 
children presenting with COVID-19 COVID who actually have a very strange inflammatory syndrome, very similar to Kawasaki's syndrome. I think we better be careful if we are not cavalier in thinking that children are completely immune to the deleterious effects. So again, you're right in the numbers that children in general do much, much better than adults and the elderly, and particularly those with underlying conditions. But I am very careful and hopefully humble in knowing that I don't know everything about this disease, and that's why I'm very reserved in making broad predictions. Thank you. Stay tuned. Let us also spend a few moments talking about how Trump treats women, but especially Senator Kamala Harris, our vice presidential nominee. This is how Trump talks about a former prosecutor, former state attorney general, and former U.S. senator from California. She was very, very nasty. She was extraordinarily nasty to uh, Kavanaugh. She was the meanest, uh, the, the most horrible, most disrespectful. Now you have a, a sort of a mad woman, I, I call her, because she was so angry and so, such hatred with Justice Kavanaugh. Trump, and this is no surprise, is a misogynist, a sexist, a racist. He not only strikes out to slander her, he also attacks her in a very vicious way, allowing the rumor to spread about her right to run for office as an American, the same birther complaint that this same bigot made against former President Obama and left out there and claimed to get investigators and everything else. So maybe he's learned his lesson a little bit. But this guy is particularly vicious when it comes to women, and he is particularly vicious when it comes to persons of color. Perhaps the best way to sum up Trump's latest attack is his desperation, except for the fact whether desperate or not, he would probably say that. But I have a better author to comment on what this all means. Uh, Senator Cory Booker was absolutely delighted when uh, she was chosen to be the vice presidential candidate on the ticket with Biden. But he responded directly to how and why the president and other people will do what they're doing to attack her. Listen to what he said. I'm, I'm smiling because um, if there's anything I know, and, and Kamala's too humble to ever say this, but she has now joined the pantheon of great black women in history. And, and I know what they've tried to do to great black women in history. They've always tried to destroy them. Ella Baker, uh, uh, Harriet Tubman, I can go through them. And uh, as one great black woman wrote so eloquently, and it applies to Donald Trump and Kamala Harris, uh, you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me down in the very dirt, but still like dust, I rise. And this uh, black woman, AKA Howard graduate, is used to uh, men uh, coming at her with the same viciousness, cruelty, and meanness, and she has risen every step of her career. And so she's not worried about Donald Trump. Uh, uh, Donald Trump should be worried about Kamala Harris. Where do we stand as Americans? Well, Trump is a man who would fix the election he can't win, and he's going to do his damnedest to do that. Trump is a man, unlike most men and all women, <laughs> who would put our children at risk because if you pretend it's okay, because that's all he's doing, believe it's okay, because that's all he has, then it will be okay. We had a discussion, at a, a panel discussion last year sometime, and uh, one of the panelists said, you know, uh, Trump believed what he was doing in the Ukraine. And my response to that was, uh, well, there was a song I used to sing to my daughter, not as well as the original, I Believe I Can Fly, you know. But believing it and knowing that you can't is an important distinction. And it should be a rational decision. And rational doesn't exist in Trump's most pernicious political arguments. So in a way, when he says, hey, don't worry, kids, don't worry, mom and dad, it's okay, it's too bad 
that Mother Nature doesn't share his delusion. But worse is if anybody follows his unsupported, factually unsupported belief. Finally, Trump is and remains the racist he has always been. So where I started this was about the promise that we made in the Declaration of Independence. And at this time in our nation's history, should we be choosing someone who is not doing anything to perfect the imperfection that we made at the beginning of our independence? Can we possibly have a man or anyone in the White House stand there and be all the things that this man is against all the things that we've believed until he took office and that we have fought to resist so that we could restore the republic? We have a political ticket. It is Biden and Harris, but it's not limited to the Democratic Party in terms of the support that it draws. It is recognized across this nation that this ticket can end this nightmare from which we cannot awake. And at least for this election, voters from across the nation, in the different parties and independents, and those with no party at all, no matter whether they were past partisans, no matter whatever, whatever other differences they have, they can support this ticket for this election so we can restore the republic and set a, court, a course to move forward. And based on that, we can resume being the beacon we have been for the rest of the world. Anyhow, thanks for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And there is no charge for subscribing. And I'll be back next Sunday with another podcast. All the best. Be safe. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.